Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to uh, uh, study, ready to focus on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us uh, this evening as we study the Word. One thing that I'd appreciate prayer for is that tomorrow uh, morning I've got to drive through this sloppy rainstorm to Lake Charles, Louisiana. And at noon, I'm teaching a Bible study for a church. They don't have a Wednesday night service. They have a Wednesday noon service. And it's the University Baptist Church in Lake Charles. And they had requested from Chafer to have somebody come out for do a uh, presentation on the seminary for the church and also to teach a Bible study. So I'm going to be leaving about 8-ish in the morning to drive over to Lake Charles, so y'all pray for me while uh, we're driving in the muck, okay? So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this evening to put our focus upon you and to get it off of all the distractions and frustrations and details of life. Father, we know that um, there are a lot of things going on. There are some people who are driving here this evening and caught in traffic, and uh, it's difficult uh, to get around with Halloween and World Series and all these other things happening, including the rain. We pray that you'll keep them safe. Father, we pray for us that we might be able to set aside these distractions and that we can focus tonight on what you have to teach us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 18. Psalm 18, and we're continuing our study of this psalm. It is a great psalm for being reminded of how God answers prayer. It's a great psalm to remind us that we can trust him for whatever in life. He is omnipotent. He is able to handle any situation that we bring to him. He is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He has always known everything, and there's nothing that we bring to him in prayer, no circumstance or situation that you and I face in life that is a surprise to God. It may surprise us, but it doesn't surprise God. So we can always bring these things to prayer. And that's what has happened with David. And as we have seen, he wrote this as a prayer of thanksgiving when Saul was killed on Mount Gilboa because Saul and those who followed Saul were a tremendous source of hostility and and antagonism to David, uh, pursuing him, hunting him, seeking to kill him, all of these things for at least 10 years, making life Uh, pretty miserable, David living on the run. And so uh, God has provided for him. And as we've looked at this, we've seen how he has um, stated the basic principles in the first three verses, uh, stating a passage, I love you, Lord, which is not the normal word for love, that one that's more intimate and passionate, identifying the Lord as his rock, fortress, deliverer, strength, He can't use enough metaphors to indicate God's the one who sustains him. 
And then his uh, sort of a concluding statement in the introduction, I call upon the Lord. He's not saying I will call in a future tense sense. He's saying this is what I do. I call upon the Lord who's to be praised and so shall I be delivered from my enemies. And that's the principle that runs throughout this particular psalm that God provides for us. Now, tonight's lesson, we're going to get into verses 16 to 24. And at the center of this is a statement that God is the one who has preserved David because uh, of David's righteousness, because David is clean and because of who David is. And so we have to understand that. And that's the principle that God blesses his righteousness. So this whole theme expresses David's gratitude and joy towards God in the midst of the delivering him in those circumstances. Then we saw in verses uh, 4 and 5 how uh, the enemy is presented as the cords of death surrounded him. David felt like he might not survive even though God had promised that he would be the king uh, of Israel. The cords of death surrounded me and floods of chaos that watery image, we'll come back to that tonight, That's that he feels overwhelmed as if he's drowning. He uses that very vivid picture that there's so much attack, it's just like he's caught up in a flood. Of course, we've got a lot of people who literally were caught by the flood waters here in Houston after Hurricane Harvey, and we need to continue to pray for those folks uh, because it's been almost two months and they're still not in their houses. And so I've talked to a few people and they may not be back in their houses for six or seven months or, or maybe even longer. So the principle then was stated in verse six, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to God. And he heard my voice from his temple. My cry came before him. Then verses seven through 15 are talking about this this intervention of God, how God is intervening, uh, moving heaven and earth to answer David and to protect David. And just these tremendous descriptions of God's power and God's intervention uh, in verses 7 uh, through uh, 15, which we looked at last time. And we ended with these three verses in verse in verses 13 through 15, the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice and he hailstones and coals of fire and just all of this picture of God's power and how the fallen world is being, uh, is so upset. We see the same kind of thing happening in the descriptions during the tribulation that when a holy God, a righteous God, an omnipotent God is intervening in the affairs of a corrupt fallen world, it it disrupts nature, and that's what's uh, being described here uh, as in, in a military sense. You know, God sent out his arrows, and that could be an allusion to angels, sending angels to intervene, but they're being depicted as arrows that scatter the foe. It's definitely a military context, which, of course, fits the context with Saul, who's seeking to destroy David. And then the very vivid description of how this affects nature is described in verse 15. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So this is a picture of how God does intervene. Now, I ended up pointing something out last time that I just wanted to touch on again before uh, we move on, and that is this phrase, the channels of the sea, and that's the Hebrew word afik, which refers to rivers that were in the sea, and there's another phrase that's used in Psalm 8, 8 the paths of the sea, uh, the ways of the sea, that inspired um, Matthew Maury who I mentioned last time, got, read the article in on Answers in Genesis. There's other things about him. But one thing I didn't po uh, point out, although it's there on the screen, this is a statue uh, that to his memory at the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis. 
I mean, this is not some second rate. He's considered the father of modern oceanography because he believed in the scripture. And I've heard that story most of my life, and it's just uh, uh, quite inspiring. But he's called the pathfinder of the seas. And uh, this is what's inscribed here at the base of his statue that's there at Annapolis. This is the plaque that is there uh, at uh, at his grave, and it reads, Matthew Fontaine Maori, Pathfinder of the Seas, the genius who first snatched from ocean and atmosphere the secret of their laws. Born January 14, 1808, died at Lexington, Virginia, February 1, 1873, carried through Goshen Pass to his final resting place. Notice the allusion to Scripture in Goshen. Uh, Carried through Goshen Pass to his final resting place in Richmond, or maybe that's a location there in, uh, in Virginia, Goshen Pass, to his final resting place in Richmond, Virginia. Every mariner for countless ages as he takes his chart to, to shape his course across the seas, will think of thee. His, ho- his inspiration, holy writ. Psalms 8 and 107, verses 8, 23, and 20, something that's obscured in 24. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 8, a tribute by his native state, Virginia, uh, 1923. So that was a little over uh, 90, 91, 90 90 years ago or so. So, 94 years ago. Now, we see similar type language used in passages like Psalm 77, 17, the clouds poured out water, the sky sent out a sound, your arrows also flashed about. And then Psalm 144, 6, flash forth lightning and scatter them, shoot out your arrows and destroy them. So there seems to be a relationship there, a description of lightning as God's, God's arrows, that God is the one who intervenes in the affairs of man. Habakkuk 3, 9 through 11, your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah, you divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, at the shining of your glittering spear. So this kind of language, the only reason I'm going through those passages is this language is not foreign to Scripture in terms of a very graphic, uh, dramatic way of talking about how God intervenes in nature and in the course of his creation. Well, that brings us to the next set of verses, four verses, Psalm 16 through 19. Again, uh, there's an emphasis on God's intervention But if you look at it, what changes from 7 through 15, 7 through 15 is all in the third person addressed to God. But verses 16 through 19 uh, now talk about God's intervention personally to David, and he describes his rescue. So we look at these verses. Notice he sent from above, he took me. So this is the first time now since verse Uh, six that we see a first person pronoun he sent from above he took me he drew me out of many waters he delivered me from my strong enemy from those who hated me for they were too strong for me they confronted me in the day of my calamity but the lord was my support he also brought me out into a broad place he delivered me because he delighted in me. So this is a <clears throat> description reminding us that God is the one who rescues us. God is the one who is able to overcome whatever the pressures are. Now I want you to notice there at the end when it says he brought me out into a broad place. Remember when we looked at, at the beginning of this, used, used words about distress 
and about um, <clears throat> how how uh, the the the, sor- uh, the the snares of death uh, uh, confronting me in that in that passage. One of the Hebrew words is a um, uh, is a form of the word for distress in verse six, and it's the word uh, that emphasizes pressure and being put in a tight place where the intensity of the circumstances make you feel just trapped and and tightened, like there's no escape. You've been boxed in. You're in a cul-de-sac in your life, and there's no place to go. And this word is just the opposite, and it, it's the same type of image. Instead of being trapped and closed in, now you're out into a broad place. You're out where there's no adversity. You can relax. God has brought you to a place where you can stretch out and you are delivered. So <clears throat> this is the focus here. So in verse 16 we read, He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Again, he's using this flood graphic to picture his deliverance, that the, the, all of his adversities just like the floodwaters that have overwhelmed him to threatening to drown him and to and to destroy him in in their effect. And it takes us back to what he's described in verse 6 when he said, In my distress, in that closed, tight place in adversity, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came uh, even to his ears. And in, in that verse, he's talking about, um, I think I put the wrong verse there. I wanted verse 4 there. The pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. That's what he's tying together. He's going back, and not to verse 6, that's wrong. Uh, he's going back to drawing me out of many waters because he had stated that these flood waters of chaos made him afraid. He's being overwhelmed by uh, the floods of adversity. And then in this verse, he uses an interesting uh, idiom here. He sent from me, he sent from above, he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. Now, when he uses this word for draw, this is the Hebrew verb mashah which means to draw something out. The Hebrew always has two, usually has like two A's in the, um, as your, your, your vowels in a verb. And if you're going to make it a noun, then you change the vowels, and the first vowel becomes an O, uh, and the second vowel becomes like a soft E. So to go f- take masha and shift it to a noun, the noun would be Moshe. What's Moshe? That's the Hebrew for Moses. So Masha is the verb that's used in Exodus 2.10 after uh, the daughter of Pharaoh uh, is given the child. Uh, she called his name Moshe saying, because I drew him, Masha, drew him out of the water. And so the use of this verb to draw out of the water is, it's only used three times in the Old Testament. And what's the image that it conjures up? It, God provided a deliverer who was drawn out, literally taken out, drawn out of the water, And then what did that deliverer do? That deliverer rescued Israel as they are in distress, as they are pressured and hemmed in in a tight place, surrounded by the troops of Pharaoh. God is the one who delivered them how? Out of the waters of the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea and they have a place to go. God is the one who could, who did uh, rescue them. So it's these floods of ungodliness that, that is pictured here. Here's where I have Psalm 18.4. Uh, 
Now, there's another thing that is pictured here in this imagery of the flood, and it's a military imagery. And that military imagery is designed to uh, talk about the overwhelming forces of the army, of an army that is opposed to you. And so that is bringing uh, with that imagery there this idea of an army. And so you have the whole picture of Saul and all of his forces uh, chasing David, attacking David, seeking to destroy David. And so it's like a flood. Now that same imagery is used in another passage, and it was interesting because I was just studying this earlier in the week, not related to this, and instantly I recognized uh, that connection of that figure of speech where a foreign army is depicted as a flood coming against Jerusalem. And this is in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. So I went over to that, and we have a couple of interesting water pictures here. Begins in verse 6, Inasmuch as these people uh, refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, and rejoice in resin and Remaliah's son. Now, uh, then it goes on in verse, I'll just read through the passage and come back and explain it to you. Isaiah is not always easy for people to understand. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty. And that river that's capitalized is a reference to the Euphrates. And so it's talking about a military power that is coming from the area of the Tigris and Euphrates. And here it's talking about Assyria that will be coming soon to attack Jerusalem. The waters of the river, strong and mighty. The king of Assyria in all his glory, he will go up over all his channels and go over all of his banks. See how that that imagery of uh, flooding is depicting an army that will come and almost completely destroy the southern kingdom. The flood waters will rise. Verse 8, he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. Now, what's the head of Judah? Jerusalem. So this is a picture. The water will rise up to the neck, but it will not rise over the head, which is Jerusalem. And uh, so the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land. The wings there refers to the army of Assyria. Will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So what is pictured here in verse 6 is really the cause of the God's bringing this judgment on Israel is that they've rejected that which God's provided that's depicted by the waters of Shiloh. Now, if you're using Old King James, I think it says Shiloh, which is not what it says in the Hebrew. It's Shiloh. And Shiloh is a pool of water. Uh, you know it of its um, Aramaic name from the Gospel of John. It's the pool of Siloam. And the Hebrew pronunciation is Shiloh. And so I thought, well, I would uh, have a little fun with this tonight and show you what you get to do if you go on a trip to Israel. Now, we haven't done it on the last two trips, but we will this time. This is a picture here on the upper left that is a picture of the old city of David. It's not very big. It, it, it's uh, probably less than 12 acres, okay? It was very small. And you see the, the wall around uh, the old city of David. And up here on the top, you can just barely see a building that would be the temple. This is the temple mount. And this is the old, old city of David. And then here you have a brick structure that it comes down from the wall and this is built around a spring this is the spring of Gihon and the Gihon spring is where the uh, rulers of Israel the kings of Israel were anointed it is the major water source for the old city of, of Jerusalem now 
there's a threat that is coming. The, the water source there is a picture of God's provision for Israel. But instead of relying upon God's provision, the people of Judea had refused the waters of Shiloh. So the waters of Shiloh simply standing in as a representation of all the blessings God had for Judah, and they've rejected it. And they rejoiced in Rezin and Remaliah's son. And that's looking to the north, the rulers of Syria and uh, the rulers of Ampica, who is Remaliah's son, uh, I believe, in the northern kingdom. And so they want to ally themselves with these other powers, Syria and the northern kingdom, to protect them from the floods of Assyria. See, they're looking to these other men instead of looking to God. And so uh, God is going to bring this judgment. It will all but destroy them. Now, as Hezekiah, who was the king at that time, was going to protect uh, Judah, provide for them at this time of a siege, knowing that the army was coming, he knew that they could not have a water source outside the walls because it would be real easy for the Assyrian army to block it and then everybody would be out of water and they would easily take, uh, take Jerusalem. So what they did was a remarkable feat of engineering and that's what you see in the picture, the lower picture on the lower left here. And this, it's a cutaway into the mountain uh, where, which you see here, which is solid rock. And over here you have the Gihon Spring, you have the cutaway here of the tower that was built around it, and you see that what they did was they dug a tunnel through the, wa the walls, and it comes all the way down through here, and then the water comes out inside the city walls, which in the top picture is just right here at the base, and this is the uh, pool of Siloam or the Shiloach. This is God's provision. And this tunnel that they built is usually referred to as Hezekiah's uh, Tunnel. This is an overhead map here on the right. You see Gihon Spring. They didn't just cut it straight through. It meanders. I'm not sure why they cut it that way unless they were trying to uh, probably because they were trying to follow the elevation so that it would always be flowing downhill to go from the Gahan Spring to uh, Siloam Pool. Now, this is um, was quite an engineering feat. It was uh, 1,750 feet long. They started with one team at one end, and another team at another end. And they work toward each other. Now notice they're not working in a straight line. So they had some way of determining just exactly where to cut, where the elevation would be. And they worked toward each other. And they met at this point here. Now, if you walk the tunnel, uh, did you ever walk the tunnel? Yeah, if you walk the tunnel, you'll see in some places... The ceiling is not that high, maybe eight feet. And then as you go a little further down, you'll come to a section where the, where the tunnel ceiling is probably 40 feet. And what happened, they didn't get the elevation right. So they were coming and they were able to measure where they were and they knew that one team was too low and the other team was too high. They were going in the right direction, but they didn't have their elevation right. So the one team that was coming from the north had to cut further down in the process and also maintain that, that slope for the water to flow. And they ended up meeting right on target. Remarkable feat of engineering. It probably took, uh, archaeologists today estimate that on the basis of their tools, of course they could be wrong there because often uh, ancient people are able to do things that uh, we can't do with, with what we think their technology was. And so this is what one of those, the high place looks. This is, uh, actually you can't see him very clearly, but this is Jeremy Thomas here, pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church. And although Jeremy's a little 
a little short, you can still see how high that is. That's a good 20 feet at least over his head. And uh, usually the water runs about knee deep to mid thigh, although uh, Tommy Ice tells me one time he was there in the rainy season, the water was up to, to his chest. Now, Tommy's almost as tall as I am, so if the water's up to his chest, that might be a little challenging for somebody 5'3 or 5'2, something like that. But it's a, um, <clears throat> it's a great experience to go through there, especially in the summer, because when it's hot outside and you get into that cool, clear, pure spring water, it just feels great to walk through that tunnel. It's a little... I, it's less than a uh, what less than a half a mile, something like that. So it's not too far. And then when you come out the other end, this is what they discovered. They uncovered this in 2005. The property line goes under this shrubbery on the right, and the property back here is owned by the Greek Orthodox Church. But what they discovered here, this is the remains of the uh, pool of the of Siloam of Shiloak. And so this is where the water would come out, and uh, and this is this is uh, provided a water source inside the walls. Second Chronicles thirty two thirty says that the tunnel leads uh, from the the tunnel leads from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam. If indeed built under Hezekiah. Uh, oh, it, it, where did I put the quote? There's the quote. I was reading about it. Okay. Second Chronicles 32.30, this same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon, and so he closed it all in and covered it so the enemy wouldn't have access to it, and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. So this is a, a tremendous picture of God's protection, which is what God, what David uh, describes in verse 17. He delivered me from my strong enemy. And the Hebrew word there is not Yeshuach for salvation. It's Natsal, which means to take something away or to uh, provide physical uh, deliverance. And he goes on and he says, he delivered me from my strong enemy, and that particular word is in the singular, my strong enemy, although some translations to make things flow say enemies, and then it says from those who hated me, that's plural. So they try to somehow reconcile the two, but I think that what he is saying, he delivered me from my strong enemy, singular, that's Saul, who's the king. And then... The second line from those who hated me are those who have allied themselves to Saul and are his agents uh, attempting to destroy David. And he says, for they were too strong for me. And the picture here for us is many times we're overwhelmed by circumstances. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe it is a crisis in relation to family or relationships. But it's, it's beyond our ability to handle it. It's too strong for us. But the solution is the Lord. This is verse 18. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. No matter how bad it got for David, they were always going to make it worse for him. But the Lord, he says, was my support. The Lord is our only support that we can ever count on. People will always fail us. Maybe not all the time, but people are people. People are sinners. We can only look to the Lord. He's the only one who truly loves us, and he's the only one who has the ability to and who will be faithful and never change. So what we learn from these verses is that when the adversities of life come like a flood, or in the case of Harvey, it's a literal flood, then God rescues us from those adversities. Now, how does he do that? He does it one of three ways. He rescues us by either taking us home. We are overwhelmed by negatives, and God takes us out of here. He just takes us home. That's one way he rescues us. Another way he rescues us is he takes us through it, but he sustains us in the midst of the adversity in the midst of the hostility and we survive god takes care of us 
And third, he may remove it from us uh, completely so that we don't have to go, go through that. And then a third lesson we learn is that no matter how large or how small the, the adversity, they should always appear too big for us. We can't handle, there are too many variables. You think about anything, even a small incident can blow up into something big. Only God is the one who can truly take care of us and provide for us. And then the conclusion comes in verse 19 where he says, he also brought me out into a broad place. He, re, he, he finally removes that pressure, that adversity. And then in the conclusion, he says, he delivered me because he delighted in me. And that's how it's expressed in the Hebrew. It's a cause. So why does God delight in David? And why might God delight in any of us? We know we're all sinners and we're all fallen. God, what is the basis for God's delight in us? Well, that basis for God's delight in us is then going to be explained in the next section, in the next verses, where God is praised because he faithfully blesses those who are loyal to him. It's not talking about salvation, but it's talking about what becomes clear in verse 20. It talks about that reward that he says, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. And there it uses a Hebrew preposition key, which means it's like the Greek preposition kata, it's according to a standard. And the Lord record according to the standard of David's righteousness. Now we know then when we talk about righteousness, there's two kinds of righteousness. There's imputed righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ. And the second is our experiential righteousness, which is that righteousness that is produced on the basis of our walk with the Lord. And he says, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. And verse 21, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. So when we look at this, we see that there are some key words here that we need to pay attention to. In the first line, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to my cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Now, this is really a chiasm where you have two terms rewarded mentioned in the first line and the last line, and then the two lines in between are talking about cleanness or talking about sanctification. So it's A, B, B, A. And the focus there is on what's in the center. And that's the righteous. David is maintaining that he has walked with the Lord. And that's what he describes in verse 21. It begins with a preposition in Hebrew. Again, it's the preposition key, but that also means because. And he said, because he's kept the ways of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean he's sinless and perfect. What that means is he obeyed the law. He obeyed Torah. For He says, and I have not wickedly departed from God. Now, what does he mean by all of this? Well, when we see these key words, reward and cleanness, one thing that ought to come to our mind is this isn't talking about salvation. Remember what we've studied many times when we talk about rewards, just a little statement. Salvation is free. Rewards are earned. Salvation, God gives us freely by faith in Christ, trusting in him. God gives us that gift of salvation. And then there's an incentive clause in that salvation contract that it's like in, in uh, professional sports. Often a, an athlete is hired for a base salary, and then there are bonuses that if you perform well, then I'm going to give you these bonuses. And so those are the incentive clauses. And that's a lot like what rewards are like. Rewards are the incentive clause for obedience and walking with the Lord 
and applying the word. So that's what David is talking about here, is that he has the absolute righteousness of Christ in a future sense, but it's applied to him. He's justified by faith. We'll look at that in just a minute. That's his imputed righteousness, but here he's talking about that righteousness that comes from uh, walking with the Lord. So here is a diagram to help explain that. God is perfectly righteous and just. The righteousness is the standard of his character, and the justice is his application of that righteousness to his creatures. And then this box represents you and I. We're sinners. We are minus R. We lack righteousness. That's hard to see on the screen. I changed the background to a darker background. But uh, that's minus R. And I've got it in black because it's sin. Then here we have the cross of Christ. Now what the scripture tells us is that Christ was perfectly righteous because he is the God-man. But we're not. We're sinners. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So even our best is filth as far as God is concerned. It is unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the issue at salvation is that possession of righteousness. We don't get it on our own. We get it because we have trusted in Christ and we're given his righteousness. So it's depicted this way. At the cross... Our sins are imputed to Jesus at the cross. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that he became sin for us. He bore that sin penalty. He separated from God judicially from 12 noon to 3 p.m. so that he bears that. He doesn't become a sinner, but he bears the penalty of sin and is, in a sense, spiritually dead because he separated from the Father during that time. Then when we trust in Christ, his perfect righteousness is then credited to us so that we are clothed in his righteousness. It's not our morality, our goodness. It's not anything that we've done that makes us savable. It's that we have his righteousness. And so God the Father declares us righteous. That's what's known as justification by faith alone. And that's what today is a day celebrating this October 31st of 2017. This is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, a lot of people talk about Luther. There's some things I'm going to show you in just a minute. Uh, Luther started this. At the time, Luther wasn't trying to start a Reformation at all. He wasn't trying to split from Rome. He was trying to solve some problems in the the Roman church. Part of the, one of the things they did was that they taught that they could spring people from purgatory if they would give enough money to the church. And so the, they were trying to raise money to uh, build the finish off St. Peter's uh, Cathedral in Rome and to build the dome. And so they sent out Uh, various people around uh, Europe in order to raise money. And one of the little ditties was, whenever a penny in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. And uh, it was just, you, you could free people to go to heaven by how much money you gave. And this irritated uh, Luther so much that he, uh, he's been wrestling with these, this whole works issue. Uh, reading Galatians in the in the original language in Greek, and he's come to understand that we're justified by faith, not by the works of the law. Galatians two sixteen, and so he wants to debate these. So he has ninety five debating points, and that's what starts it. But Luther, Luther didn't have everything right. He had 
salvation right. And he understood that Scripture was the authority, not Scripture plus tradition. So that's sola fide, by faith alone, and sola scriptura, by great uh, by Scripture alone. Scripture, not Scripture plus the tradition of the Catholic Church. And so this becomes the starting point of the Protestant Reformation. There are a lot of things that Luther didn't understand yet. In fact, uh, one of the men that followed him was a much younger man named Philip Melanchthon, who became the, the real theologian of the Lutheran movement. And then it was another seven or eight years before John Calvin in uh, French uh, Switzerland be, uh, becomes uh, saved. And then you have other reformers like Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland. Uh, there were predecessors to these groups. You had Jan Hus, who was uh, um, in Czechoslovakia, He's and you had John Wycliffe and the Lollards. That was the name for those who followed Wycliffe about 150 uh, years earlier in England. But nothing that they, they didn't, they tried to light a fire, but nothing was ready to catch yet. But with Luther, because of the Black Death and all these, uh, many people died, many clergy died. One of the results of that, you had a lot of people who went into the clergy who were pretty reprobate, and so the clergy became really bad. The popes were really bad and corrupt, and so people lost their trust in the Roman Catholic Church. And so they were ready now to uh, to have a real reformation. And so this is what... Uh, what took place with the recovery of the um, doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, I'm going to try. I may have to. That may not work. I'm going to try to go back to the Internet here. And I wanted to show you this little graphic that came out. That's not it. Here we go. This is a little graphic that came out from Barna Research Group. Barna is a, that research group really is conservative and it focuses a lot on uh, polling related to spiritual uh, and theological issues and what's going on in the church. So they had a, sent out this, and they had this little infographic uh, about 500 years of Reformation and the bottom line on their research was that the majority of Americans believed that the Reformation was justified but divisive. Now, it's interesting here, if you can see this, is this graphic here says, and I don't know if I can read that from here, 34% of Americans claim that they know the main points and key actors in the Protestant Reformation. 34%. That's a lot more than I would have thought. 33% say that they have a uh, comprehensive understanding of the Reformation. That's 67%. That's two-thirds of America. I've, I'm not that optimistic. But that's what they, they say. And and. Barna has always impressed me as being pretty accurate. They have the most rigorous, like nine points of doctrine that you have to believe if you're an evangelical, whereas a lot of other groups you just have to believe uh, in the Trinity, you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, or in some, some cases if you think you're an evangelical, you are one. But they have nine points of doctrine that you have to believe in order to be a, be an evangelical, so they're very conservative. So, it, it, and they've been doing this for twenty five or thirty years. He's eighteen percent of Americans say they've never heard of the Reformation until now, and then fifteen percent they know almost nothing. So that's thirty three percent. So a third of Americans don't have a clue what you're talking about when you talk about the Reformation. And so then they have some uh, other other information here. So the question is, would you say that the Reformation was um, justified 
and that's about 55% and unjustified, and I can't even see that. John, can you can you read that? Are your eyes good enough to read that? I'll look over here. Yes. Justified is 85%. Unjustified is 15%. That's amazing. So most Americans say it was justified. Uh, they, 85, 86% say it was successful. 14% say it's unsuccessful. About, what's that next one? About 89% say it was good. 11% say it was bad. 44% say it was unifying. And then you have... Uh, what, can you read that number? Forty, what? Fifty-six percent say it was divisive. I wanted to make a point about that. Is being divisive bad? Yes. Well, very good. It, it, it depends. Depends on what? Depends on what the issue is. But we live in a world that wants to say, and this has been going on for thirty or forty years. Anything that's divisive is automatically bad. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, where Paul is talking to the Corinthians about uh, the divisions in the church, and they're very divisive in Corinth, and he says, first of all, he's, and he's indicting them on this, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it, because he knows how carnal they are. That's the first three chapters. Then in verse 9 it says, for there must also be factions among you. See, you get a lot of people and say, oh, the problem with Christianity is you have all these denominations. Well, Paul says that sometimes it's necessary to have divisions. Sometimes that's the right thing. He says, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. In other words, there should come differences because it's going to show who understands the truth and who doesn't. So that's a backdrop. Okay, back to Psalm 18. Verse 20, he says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Now, I want you to notice verse 24. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. So we have a repetition of the, these key words again in verse 24. We have it in 20 and 24. In literature, that's a... a uh, way of design called an inclusio. It means it, it, it's everything where we get our word included, inclusive. And in, in the military, if you've been involved with artillery, that's called bracketing. Where you may, uh, may in artillery, you may first overshoot the target. Now you've, you're beginning to get your range. Then you undershoot the target. Ah, now you've got your range. You've bracketed it. And then you hit dead center. And so that's the idea here. It's bracketed this section so we know that everything within 20 to 24 is talking about this same thing, that God rewards David because of his obedience to Scripture. Verse 20 says, The Lord rewarded me, and he has recompensed me. The word for reward means to deal with. It's not really a word that should be translated rewarded. The Lord dealt with me on the basis of my righteousness. That's his practical righteousness, his experiential righteousness, his walk with the Lord, because David was obedient. Now, in what way was David obedient? That's the question we need to answer. According to the cleanness of my hands. So righteousness and cleanness are juxtaposed here. Well, we know that cleanness is a term related to sanctification that David might sin, but he confesses his sin, and so he is cleansed of sin. So he is walking with the Lord doesn't mean you're always perfect, but it means that you're dealing with, you're not in open rebellion against God. 
And in return, God has recompensed me, and that means he returned to me. It's the word shuv. We've studied that in terms of the return of Jews back to God or turning back to God. It has that idea of he has returned to me. He has blessed me because I have been walking with him. Now, we see this same idea in some other passages. Um, I'll get there in just a minute. Verse 21, he says, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. That's his basis. He's kept the ways of the Lord. He's been obedient. For I have not acted, I have, and have not wickedly departed from God. Now, what exactly might he be describing at this point? Who's he writing about? Who's his enemy in this passage? Saul. In what way did David act righteously toward Saul? Well, in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, David had the opportunity to take Saul's life. Saul was in his clutches. His men were saying, go ahead, God's given him to you, kill him. And he said, no, I'm not going to take the life of the Lord's anointed. I don't have that ability. That's not correct. He's not going to rebel against uh, God's authority. And so he is being obedient to Torah. He hasn't disgraced himself. He hasn't acted wickedly in disobeying the law. And so because he has humbled himself and walked with God during this time, even though he made mistakes at different times, he still went with him. So this reminds us of, I put two verses up here from Psalm 1. We can go back and look at Psalm 1, emphasizes this same kind of thing. It It's not a denial of grace. Grace is that free grace of salvation. But if we obey the Lord and walk with him, then God blesses us on the basis of experiential righteousness. In the church age, that experiential righteousness is produced by our walk by the Holy Spirit. Notice what Psalm 1 says. There's a contrast between the sinner and the one who um, walks with the Lord. So he starts off, notice it's a negative. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Notice the progression there from walking to standing to just sitting in there as as a scornful one. But in contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates on Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Is that what he says? No, he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, seven days a week, 24-7. Whenever he's awake, in the back of his mind, he's thinking about how does Scripture relate to what I'm doing, that he may live honorably before the Lord. And the result in verse 3, he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit, its productive, spiritually Productive, They bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, he shall prosper. Why? Not because he's so good, but because he's walking in wisdom. That's what the Proverbs would say. Because he's applying the word, he's going to make good decisions and wise decisions, and so he'll prosper because, he, because of that. In contrast, verse 4, the ungodly are not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What's the problem? The problem is, if we're walking in sin, then the Lord will not hear us. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. So we have to confess our sin. And that is how we are restored and cleansed so that we can continue to walk with the Lord. So this is why David is saying that God blesses him is because even though he sins, his heart is with the Lord. That's why the scripture says he's a man after God's own heart. Saul was rebellious. He was not first and foremost concerned with God. And so he constantly made wrong decisions. David wants to please the God. His heart, his passion is to serve God. But he's a sinner, so he failed. Sometimes he failed miserably, but he was still driven by his desire to serve the Lord. And so when he sinned, he confessed, he's cleansed, 
and he can go forward. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. And the next time we'll come back and resume with verse 22. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that when we walk with you, we are walking by the Holy Spirit. And it is on the basis of Christ's righteousness that we're blessed, not on the basis of our good deeds. When we're walking with you, it is that righteousness produced by the Holy Spirit in this church age that glorifies you and that is the basis for our our experiencing blessing, not our own goodness. And the Old Testament is a little different, but the principle is still the same to walk in the light of your word. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the importance of meditating on your word day and night and walking consistently with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.